Hello, fellow tiny human docs, and welcome to the seventh episode of Peds in a Pod. We're your hosts, Ashley Grigsby. And David Rayburn. And again, we're combined emergency medicine and pediatric residents at Indiana University. And this is our board review podcast focused on high-yield review topics for the pediatric boards. We follow the outline and study recommendations set forth in the American Board of Pediatrics content outline for the General Pediatrics Board. This month, we'll be discussing trace minerals, cystic fibrosis, sedation, and some more ID topics. Um, We have the 18-month milestone minute, uh, as well as cootie shots. What are you going to be doing for your cootie shot this month? It's a really great question, and you might have to just wait to find out. I'm on the edge of my seat. Yep. As always, we invited some people to come and help us discuss these topics, so they're going to drop some knowledge on you and hopefully get you a few extra points on the boards. I can't wait. I'm very excited for this month. It's going to be good. we got some good stuff coming. We do. And I feel like every time we're giving you guys a news update uh, because we just keep having more fun things happen, this month we are now over 30,000 downloads. Woo-woo. So we really appreciate your guys' continued support. Uh, we wanted to give a shout out to a medical student from South Carolina who listens to the podcast and actually reached out. Uh, to us while she was interviewing here recently. So thank you for listening. Yeah, we uh, wish we could have met with you. We know we missed you, but uh, if you come here, you can always help us out. And there was also a message from somebody in Qatar listening. So Yeah, I know. It's crazy. We just have lots of listeners from all over. Yeah, so We're again, excited. we appreciate you guys. Uh, and we've been a lot more active on the Twitter, so if you're not following us already, at Peds in a Pod is the Twitter handle, and we've been posting a lot of new pearls and interesting cases that we've come across, so mm-hmm. it's just an extra place to find some more information while you're waiting for us to uh, put out the next episode. The Twitter is what you're calling it. The Twitter. The Twitter, yeah. Um, and also, we'd really appreciate if you guys keep leaving comments on Podbean and iTunes. It helps us make the podcast better for you, so... Make sure to leave us a comment, um, and we'll keep making it better. All right, guys, so we're going to continue with our new tradition of starting the intro with a case. Um, we started this last episode, so we're going to give it a go again. We've invited the fantastic Dr. Rasiniak back. Uh, he's been with us previously twice, um, so make sure to listen to those episodes talking about bites and stings and then also poisons. That is his specialty, the fact that he's the Indiana, uh, the director of the Indiana Poison Control Center. It's actually really cool because he is our faculty mentor and he has his own podcast called the Dantastic Mr. Tox and Howard Show, which you can find on iTunes. So I encourage you, if you have any interest in toxicology, um, they present some pretty awesome cases. Uh, It's a great listen and you'll probably learn a thing or two like you are with us. So welcome back, Dr. Siniak. Thanks for having me back and for the shout out. I didn't even have to pay for that. No, pretty sure. Free advertising. Yeah. Okay, so we are going to talk about a case, and I want to get your thoughts on it. So a 15-year-old female uh, comes in. She's got a history of depression. She presents by EMS. Uh, EMS uh, tells us that she um, got in a fight with her mom and then went to her room, kind of stormed off, and about two and a half hours later, mom realizes she hasn't heard from her in a while, so she goes up, can't find her, realizes she's locked herself in the bathroom. She uh, knocks down the door. She finds her daughter kind of confused, agitated, calls 911. She shows up in your in the emergency department. She's got dilated pupils. She's agitated. Her heart rate's like 130. You're kind of starting to figure things out, and then she starts seizing. 
Row, Yeah, oops. <laughs> now, not to make this a spoiler alert, obviously it's a tox case given right. who we have with us, but there's lots of I things you have to think about. I would have said get a pregnancy test. <laughs> well, that's true. We could do that. What do you think? Well, I mean, knowing it's a toxin, why did you ask me? And I would think of it as being a toxin in a 15-year-old, previously healthy female anyways, right? If you start looking at causes of seizures in that age group, certainly epilepsy is a possibility, but... Toxins are going to fall high on the list, and particularly in the last um, five to seven years, really since about 2010, 2011, we've, around the country, seen really dramatic increases in, in teen suicide, particularly amongst teen uh, girls. And so locally here, for instance, we lead the nation in suicidal ideation amongst teenagers, but it really is an epidemic that's been shown to be across the country. So teen suicides mm-hmm. are the highest they've been in all very, very long time, and most of it's you know, teenage girls. So that puts, you know, toxins that would cause seizures um, in, high into my differential. And I think you said history of? Depression. Depression, okay. Yeah. So that helps, right? You start thinking about things that are used for depression, and then you start to kind of look at, well, what are the antidepressants that cause seizures? And there's a lot of them. The... It used to be that if we said what's the most common cause of a toxin-induced seizure, that we would have said a tricyclic antidepressant. Okay, so it yeah. It would have been you know, amitriptyline or amipramine or any host of the tricyclics. But as probably your audience and you have recognized, there's not a lot of teens anymore, not even a lot of adults anymore that are being prescribed tricyclics as antidepressants. You still see them occasionally used for neuropathic pain and for sleep. Sleep. And That's stuff. right. Yeah but not as often as an agent for depression. So while those were the most common cause of it, it's become a little less common with less use. If it was a tricyclic, you know, there'd be some other clues I would be looking for. I might look at the QRS. Are they anticholinergic, right? Are they dry mouth? Certainly dilated pupils would make me think about the tricyclic as well. Do they have urinary retention? Is the QRS wide? QTC. So I'd want that information. So you've got the tricyclics, which certainly would do it in, in, for depression. Other antidepressants, so what about the SSRIs? They certainly can. Now, Prozac and Zoloft and all of the kind of older SSRIs that we think of, those are commonly used in teens. In fact, for the audience standpoint, might be on your board. The only antidepressant that's been FDA-approved for teenagers is Prozac. Prozac that's right. Think, that's yeah. right. Prozac. So it should be the one that they're most commonly on. For reasons I don't understand, it's not the ones I tend to take care of in terms of overdose. Maybe they went through Prozac and didn't work on it when I talked to them that they didn't get started with that. But So Prozac, you can find cases certainly of Prozac causing a seizure and Zoloft and paroxetine and other of the older, but they're not common. It's not a common. It's usually part of serotonin syndrome, and it's usually... They overdosed on multiple agents that had serotonergic effects. Again, you can find single cases, but they're pretty rare. For the audience, like, I wouldn't think about this being a Zoloft or a Prozac overdose by itself. Could be, yeah, but less likely. If there was multiple agents involved, so it was Zoloft and you know, all these other serotonergic agents, yeah. Then you start to get into the SNRIs. Well, let me go back to the SSRIs. There are some more toxic SSRIs. Um, so you, then you get to the citalopram, escitalopram. Certainly, citalopram has a higher rate of seizures, and, and we've seen that as a single agent in overdose cause some seizures in, in kids. Also pretty good at causing QTC coma. 
option. So maybe, maybe on my list, start to get into the SNRIs, so venlafaxine being kind of a prototypical one, duloxetine. Those are pretty good at causing seizures. Certainly as a single agent, those would potentially cause seizures. Those can widen your QRS out, kind of like the way the, the old tricyclines mm-hmm. could through you know, blocking those heart sodium channels and widen out. So okay. if we heard her EKG, she had a wide QRS, I might think about that as well. And then we get to what I consider the worst of all of the newer antidepressants, and that is Wellbutrin, which, as you know, I like to coin as Illbutrin. Which now I'll never stop calling it. I don't think there's anything well about that drug. It's an interesting drug. It has become the most common cause of toxic-induced seizure across the board, not just teens, but for adults Adults as well. And, you know, it is really bad at causing seizures, and it's really bad at potentially causing status. Um, Now... It's negative action is it's thought to be mostly dopamine reuptake. It also has some norepi reuptake. Um, not as much serotonin, though it does have effects on serotonin. You know, it initially was uh, released as an antidepressant in a, a short-acting form. It was a three-time-a-day dose. I think it was 450 milligrams a day or something like that that people were taking. But they had a high rate of seizures. Huh. So they pulled it. They decided to pull it. And then they reformulated it so that it had an extended kind of release formulation. They Which is great. The dose. Yeah. It's great in overdose when great it's extended over, release. Yeah, yeah I love it. Worst. So <laughs> that lowered the seizure incidence enough in people taking it therapeutically that it, it got back out. And now for reasons, and maybe it's regional, but your audience can tell you uh, through your Twitter account um, or through email, I see a lot of wellbutrin, a lot of wellbutrin in kids. I feel like Ibupro- everyone's And I really should say bupropion instead of bupropion. I see a lot of bupropion overdoses. I do see a lot of people on it. It is a really bad overdose. So it's a it's bad for a couple of reasons. If you looked at its structure, if you you know had some total chemical nerd uh, go to the board and draw it out, um, and they drew out the structures of things that we call bath salts, like MDPV and you know, flaca and the stuff that makes people eat their face, you'd notice there's a strong structural similarity between ilbutrin and the bath salts. And they're both what we call synthetic cathinones, and they're both stimulants. And that's part of the reason people like it as an antidepressant, because it... Who doesn't love bath salts? That's well, yeah, and you know, weight loss. Nice. A little more energy, yeah. like so. Some of the side effect profile they like from it mm-hmm. um, because it is a stimulant, uh, but it is really bad at causing seizures. Um, it's got really two bad properties that folks should know about. One, it's great at causing seizures, most common cause. Two, is it's good at causing status, and that's the biggest risk that somebody's going to have for dying from that drug is from status epilepsy. Okay. So we can talk in a minute about the treatment because it, it needs to be thought of differently from epilepsy. The other is in big overdoses, bigger than those that cause seizures by themselves, you can get cardiac toxicity. It will widen your QRS and your QTC out. The wide QRS part of it that's really problematic is that it does so not by blocking sodium channels. You can't treat it with sodium That's right. You can, and it's reasonable to try some bicarb, but there are plenty of cases out there where it seems to be refractory to it. And the thought is that it affects, again... The audience would not need to know this reports, but uh, gap junctions in cardiac cells. I remember those from pathology. Oh, my God. You remember more than me. That's so, all yeah, I got. So it affects that. <laughs> so, yes, treated with bicarb, but it's probably not going to work. Oh, um, 
those people, those those are really bad. We've, we've had cases of cardiovascular collapse and ECMO and the whole thing. But let's go back to treating somebody like this. So let's let's do, do we find out what she took? It was Wellbutrin. It was Ilbutrin. It was Ilbutrin. It was Ilbutrin. Yeah. Whatever you um, <laughs> yeah. The good thing is you don't have to know what it is. If it's a toxin-induced seizure, it's pretty simple. Your first line agent is what you can get quickly and administer quickly. And for the most part, every emergency department or every ICU or every ambulance out there, it's going to be a benzodiazepine. That's why your benzos are your first line. Because you got them and you can give them. And there's not a big time delay. And the other great thing about benzos is there's not a lot of drug-drug interactions, right? Yeah. yeah, if they're on a sedative, it'll make them sleepier. But it's not like, you know, every time you give an extra dose of it, the QTC triples or their QRS gets wider or they're more anticholinergic, it's got a fairly specific effect, so it's pretty safe to get with almost everything. And the worst side effect is sedation, and these patients are sometimes agitated. So benzo is really your first-line agent, and it doesn't really matter which one you use. Um, midazolam is great, and I know the peds world likes midazolam, and actually the adult world likes midazolam as well. It may work. There's some studies suggest it may have onset of action faster than lorazepam or Ativan, which all the adult EDs tend to give. I don't care. Just give one of them, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the nice thing about Ativan, it lasts longer, so you don't have to redose as much. Um, so I like a benzo as my first-line agent. Um, here's, what I, here's what I don't like, and this is what I see a lot. Child seizes, has a 20-second seizure, and stops. I get called through the poison center sometimes, and we say, well, I'd give them benzo. They say, well, we're going to wait to see if she has another seizure. My whole thing is, why? It's like saying somebody had, and I would, while you're honest, think about this. This person had a run of ETAC. Oh, well, I let's just wait. I can let's wait. see if they die again. Yeah, let's. That'll be fine. No, if they've had a seizure, they need to be treated, period. There's no waiting. In fact, I would argue in an ilbutrin overdose, if they're altered and tachycardic, you should give them a benzo, period. Those are probably the best predictors of who's going to seize. Yeah. Um, you can seize therapeutically on this, so I can't give you a dose at which you won't seize seizures. It's more common to see when they take more than three grams, but you people can seize therapeutically on this drug periodically, so any amount of it could do it. But if they're agitated or tachycardic, they've got enough on board that I'm giving them a benzo right off the board. Now, my second agent, say they seize again, um, I would, again, if I had the benzo, give it. But the second class of drug I'm going to is not Keppra. <laughs> Shocking. Not, not Dilantin. It's not Valproic acid, right? And that's where, you know... A tox seizure, a little different. That's right. Even though it, it's funny because the neurology literature, when you look at status for them, it's the same. It's, it's the same thing I recommend for tox. But for whatever reason... A lot of people like to go to Keppra. I don't know if they would do it in a teenager. They might, depending yeah. on where they are. Um, and maybe Keppra has some benefit in this. We have no idea. Um, the reason these drugs cause seizures is they lower the seizure threshold. They make the inside of that neuron voltage higher, more positive. What you want to do is to lower the seizure threshold. Now, a lot of the drugs that are treated, that we treat people with epilepsy for, the way they work is they prevent an abnormal area of the brain that's firing excessively from spreading to its neighbors. That's how dilantin, as a sodium channel blocker, oxcarbazepine, and others work. Toxic-induced seizures are causing seizures because every neuron in the brain is firing, right? Huh, and yeah. So most, most epilepsy cases are partial complex seizures that secondarily generalize. Toxic seizures are all generalized, unless somebody has an underlying 
focal seizure disorder and you know you're just changing seizure threshold. So we want to put every neuron to sleep right away. And so benzos are number one, number two is barbiturates. I still like phenobarbital. I still think it's the appropriate drug in toxic seizures, especially if you think there's a likelihood of multiple seizures, and certainly in Wilbutrin there is. I like to give 10 mg per kg. Um, yes, it can sedate people, yeah, and occasionally Wellbutrins are bad that they're actually you know, really out of it. So the big fear is that you'd have to innovate this patient. I don't see that as a problem. Yeah, right. Occasionally I do. Them, These are teens typically, yeah. and not that hard to innovate. You don't have screwed up airways. Innovate the kid, that's fine. If you innovate them, be careful on the paralysis, yeah. right? And we still see that periodically at some of the smaller hospitals where somebody's innovated and got a long-acting paralytic, and you're like, are they seizing? And like, no. No, the answer is I don't know. <laughs> They're you, paralyzed. That's right. And it's, and you the brain seizing is bad. Yeah. <laughs> so they need continually EEG monitoring. The good thing at most big PED centers is you can you can actually get that in. In fact, it tends to be easier, in, I think, in the PED center. It is, totally. Know. As someone yeah. who does both things, it's yeah, way, yeah, way It's easier. hard to get the adults to get can you, the PEDs. People are sure. Yeah, so um, if you paralyze them, obviously you want that. I like phenobarbital as my second agent. If they keep seizing, um, you know, and I use PRN benzos, propofol would be the third drug. If you're giving them propofol, you're innovating. Not that you have to, but you can, innovate. Yeah. It's going to be hard to control the drips, and you're just better off in innovating. So those would be my order. Now, if somebody threw Kepra into the mix, would I care? No, fine. I don't care. You know, if your neurologist comes by, no bashing neurologists out there. They're really bright. They're my good friends are neurologists. But I take care of seizures from toxins more than, more than they, they do. So if they come by and get a consult and they throw Kepra, fine. But give them phenobarb the phenobarb as well. Yeah, and then... Again, for these, the, the, you mentioned this earlier, the, the other problem I hate about ilbutrin is it's got a fairly long duration of action mm -hmm. and extended release. So the other important thing with this particular drug is, say you got the teenager who just took four grams, three grams, whatever, of ilbutrin in a suicide attempt in their emergency department, and they're three hours into it, and they're having no symptoms. You can't send them up. We typically keep all of these for 24 hours, and that's because there are cases... In this case, it's a little abnormal in how quick it occurred. Um, so maybe it was not the extended release. Maybe it was the immediate release. But there are cases out there um, where people have had seizures that were delayed for up to 12, uh, 18 hours. So you're typically going to watch these people. At these, usually, since they're symptomatic, usually long before they seize. And usually get symptomatic in three, three four, six, eight hours. But you're going to have to keep these folks if they're asymptomatic. You're not going to send them home. It's a lot of rambling. No, it's good. It's good. See? Case-based learning. Right. That's so, I mean, back to the case, though. You have a 15-year-old girl mm -hmm. who has depression. She got in a fight with her mom, and she starts acting funny. She's got things that make you worry about an ingestion and then seizes. So, in that spectrum, it makes you think of stuff like antidepressants, especially yeah. given that clinical picture. Yeah. And then if you are having a seizure, we've talked about this on previous podcasts, I believe. Get a glucose. There's that first. Get a pregnancy test. That's second. Get some lab. And we've talked about an EKG. And give them some benzos. That's it. So You're right. We <laughs> need to do this whole episode. <laughs> we would do the same. And there's other drugs that can cause seizures I didn't go into. I know sure. that we were going to talk mostly about the antidepressant part of this, yeah. but, I mean, cocaine, and there's a whole host of drugs that could potentially cause seizures, but this is the most common cause. Yep. And when we look at teens, teen overdose for suicide, the most common thing they take is 
Tylenol. Some kind Tylenol. of Tylenol. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Were, we need a P, like a PD, what is it, PSA? Like, oh, stop yeah. taking Tylenol. Analgesics. Yeah. It's just because it's everywhere. It's everywhere, yeah. The other big class they take are antihistamines. Mm. Same Benadryl, reason. Yeah. Then the number one prescription medicine, antidepressants. Interesting. That's right. And one of the things that I'd like to see us change the way we collect data is that some of it's their medicine, sometimes they're taking their parents. But mm-hmm. you know, there is this big concern as to whether or not the use of antidepressants in adolescence increases the rate of suicide. Certainly it's a black box warning right. on every one of those because there is data to suggest that. And then you start to get into this. Well, is it because they're depressed? That's right. Or, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So, but the, but if you've got a, a teen seizing, that's certainly it. Then you're going to get into weird stuff besides talk to you and NDA advice. We've had a few of those where somebody thought it was drugs. Um, if it's drugs of abuse, you're going to think about you know, cocaine, uh, bath salts, but also spice K2 really good at causing seizures. N-balm, some of the synthetic hallucinogens are really good at causing seizures. So you're going to think about those agents if you think they're getting high. Um, you're going to check your tunnel, your aspirin, you know, you're going to check all that other stuff. The adolescent pediatricians that are listening to this are enjoying all of these references, I'm sure, but our general pediatricians may be like, what is Ken Bomb? Oh, yeah, Ken Bomb. K2? That's right, Spicy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So nice that somebody doesn't know what that stuff is. So, um, yeah, K2 and Spice are synthetic marijuana compounds, and they're sold on the street pretty commonly. Uh, a lot of places you could get it legally for a long time, some places you still can. Unlike marijuana, they cause seizures. Um, you potentially get seizures from really high concentrations of THC. These things work at the same receptors in the brain that the active ingredient in THC does. They just do so with a potency of about, some of them, thousands of times. More. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's something bad. Um, N-BOM is a class of compounds called a phenethylamine. The only thing to think about, it's... It's sold as LSD. It's sold on blotter paper as LSD. It's a really potent serotonin 2A receptor agonist. It's really nerdy. Really potent serotonin receptor agonist. And unlike LSD, which does affect serotonin receptors, it makes people hallucinate. This makes people seize. Really, it's a great drug at causing seizures. There's been numerous deaths uh, in teenagers using uh, this agent. So if it's a drug of abuse setting, that that'd be all that different. They get huge pupils, they get corneas, they get serotonin syndrome type uh-huh. stuff, yeah. So if somebody said I took, they, I would tit LSD and I put a piece of paper on my tongue and they started seizing, it's probably an N-bomb or some other synthetic hallucinogen. Um, same, treatment, the, same treatment choice yeah. for your seizures? Same, <laughs> same. Perfect. There's only Perfect. one, uh, there, you know, if you start talking about when would you add, when would you do something different for a tox-induced seizure besides that. The, the examples I would think of, one would be, um, say they are an immigrant, or say they... Oh, I got it. Global travel. I got it. Uh, what I you got? It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, give them B6. That's right, that's right. You're going to give them pyridoxine, and that's because it inhibits um, an enzyme that you need to make the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA, and it does so by blocking these... B6 pathways, or give them B6 and you overcome that. So that would be one. And say you don't know, you know, fine, you can give them. No one's going to get hurt by giving them 50 or 100 milligrams of B6. Just give it to them. No biggie. Um, that's probably the only. I don't think if there's anything else magical. No, I mean, some people would use lipid, emulsion oh, therapy, yeah. blah, 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 blah. But um, <laughs> for local anesthetics, for sure. Oh, yeah. 
but no, otherwise your, your treatment approach is spot on. Well, I want to apologize for you guys that not all of our cases will be this good with such an in-depth seizure discussion <laughs> and drug great. discussion. I, I was impressed. We just like put him on the spot. He had no preparation for this. We were I, like, hey, by the way. I always have preparation. <laughs> I've had like five cups of coffee. Yeah, there you go. That doesn't count. <laughs> and I love talks. This is like... It's your thing. Yeah, yeah. If I if people would let me talk in front of people about toxins so I could do it all, I just would probably... So you pediatricians out there that need somebody to come talk to you about tox, uh, you, you know where to find him. Uh, as stated previously, that Dantastic Mr. Tox and Howard show. Check it out on iTunes. But Dr. Sinek, I appreciate you coming back and joining us. Oh, you guys have it. I love your podcast. Love it. Thanks love for all your help. Oh, yeah. As always, the thoughts and ideas expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Indiana University School of Medicine or IU Health or any of its affiliates. This podcast is not intended to be used in the place of clinical judgment or as a diagnostic tool. We also know that there's new literature published daily, but unfortunately the board exam content can lag behind some of this information. This podcast is focused on giving you the information relevant for the boards. We cannot cover everything, and this podcast is not all-inclusive, but we do hope you learn something that will help you on the boards. All right, now let's dive into this month's episode.